Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. On a fall day in 2008, when John McCain was running hard against Barack Obama for president, there was an unusual back and forth that got a lot of attention. It was in Minnesota. It was at a town hall that McCain was using to criticize Obama's proposed policies. And a woman stood up and she said she was worried. I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a um, he's an Arab. The woman's assertion that Obama was an Arab got a lot of attention for two reasons. First, for the way that Senator McCain handled it. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. The other reason that that moment got a lot of attention was that many in the crowd booed McCain for refuting the woman. So the senator's reaction seemed to indicate that the woman had fringe views, but the crowd's reaction seemed to indicate that the views may not have been so fringe. But how do you know what a fringe view is and how do fringe views muscle their way into the mainstream? Is it a fringe view, for example, that we should raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour? Is it a fringe view to think that we should pull our troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan? Is it a fringe view to want to cut back on immigration? Leonardo Burstein is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he just happened to be doing an experiment on fringe views during the 2016 election. Now, obviously, this was an election that turned out to be a lot more explosive than he had ever imagined. And he watched a country transforming before his eyes. Because remember, we're talking about a campaign that got started, at least for the future president, this way. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. That was Donald Trump announcing for president back in 2015. And a lot of people shook their heads when they heard that, and they thought, these are fringe views. They are fringe enough to sink any campaign before it gets off the ground. Obviously, that was wrong. So Trump's ideas either were not fringe when he said them, or as people warmed to them or they warmed to him, they became less fringe. And how that happened was something that Leonardo Burstein was watching in real time. He's one of the authors of the paper From Extreme to Mainstream, How Social Norms Unravel. And he says, consider this possibility. What if you've been told your whole life it's not okay to be xenophobic, to be scared of, or to feel negatively about people from other places? And that's what everyone around you has also been told. So I, I stay quiet, right? In the closet, so to speak, right? So I don't learn that there are other people who share the same views because no one is expressing them, right? So you can stay in this situation for a long time because everybody's sort of afraid of trying out and saying, expressing those things because they're afraid of the way they're going to be judged by society, right? 
So what happens throughout the campaign, and that's what we're trying to investigate, is that you have a candidate who's just out there saying those things, expressing those views, and then you see it say, well, I was, just, I was convinced that this was a very fringe uh, opinion, and now I see this guy on TV saying that perhaps it's not as fringe as I thought. So Burstein and his colleagues designed an experiment that went like this. A couple of weeks before the election, a group of Americans in deep red states where Trump was going to have no trouble winning, they were told, you'll get a cash reward if the researchers can make a contribution on your behalf to an anti-immigration organization. But what we did is that for half of the participants, we told them that their decision would be completely anonymous. And to half of the participants, we told them... If you make this donation, uh, you might be contacted by someone from the research team to see if there is any wedge, right? Any difference in the likelihood of donating the money. So was there a wedge between people who felt like they were taking actions in private and people who thought that what they did might go public? Yes. Just over 50 percent of the people who thought that the donation would be anonymous gave money to the anti-immigration organization. But if they believed they might have to talk to somebody about it, that number dropped from 50 percent to 30 percent. People were worried that they were going to be judged. And when they thought that they'd be given sideways glances, lots of them decided, I'm not going to do it. But I should mention here, there was one more group that we haven't talked about. Like everyone else, this group lived in a deep red state. They were also offered money to donate to an anti-immigration group. And like everyone else, some in this group were told, you can do this anonymously. Others were told, your decision might go public. But the difference was this. All of these folks were reminded of something. Candidate Trump, who by that point had expressed a lot of skepticism and concern about immigrants, candidate Trump is super popular in your state, and he's probably going to win. And that, just that reminder, made a huge difference. So instead of having something like 50% donating in private and 30% donating public, you have 50% in private and 50% in public. That difference, that wedge, that reflected some embarrassment, some discomfort publicly expressing this xenophobic action is no longer there. For that chunk of people, the chunk that was reminded how popular Trump was in the communities around them, the embarrassment or the concern about donating to an anti-immigration group, that just went away. An idea that might have seemed fringe suddenly got mainstreamed. Burstein did not expect to see social norms changing during his experiment, but he did. The interesting thing about norms is because norms, you know, is this how I think people are going to judge me for expressing a view for acting a certain way. And it's what people think other people will think. So we document that in some cases, and there, are, there have been other uh, cases of this phenomenon where people might be wrong about what they think others think. You know, especially when society is changing at a fast pace. For example, if, if people are changing their views about gay marriage, it's very hard for you to have a, a good sense of what other people think because society is changing its view about a topic and it's sometimes hard for people to have this a precise sense of, of this change. So, you know, you might, you might end up uh, having very fast changes when people realize uh, that other people have indeed moved on in their opinions, right? It, this could be toward... Uh, a more progressive uh, viewpoint, or it could be, like, like as we observe now, some types of beliefs that we thought were long gone, perhaps were there under the rug uh, in the closet, and now they're just uh, uh, resurfacing. So one of the really interesting things that your research speaks to on, on how fringe ideas become mainstream is 
what is the power of a leader? And I think there's kind of two views, often amongst people who don't like President Trump. One is that much as we've been talking about, look, you know, he's sort of spreading these views that are xenophobic. But another view is, you know, maybe he's, you know, not somebody that we like, but what he's really doing is holding up a mirror to who we already were before he came along. Because after all, if he was saying things that were completely unpopular, he never would have been elected. What do you think about uh, the power or the not power of a leader in terms of being able to shape the people that he leads? It's a great question. I my, my take on this is that one thing that Donald Trump seems to have done based on our research is really what you say, this idea of the mirror, mm -hmm. right? Which right. is having a leader, someone like uh, a candidate, endorse a set of ideas really helps people learn about how popular these ideas are. Mm -hmm. When you have an official person, an official leader adopting a position, the position sort of becomes institutionalized. You know, it's, it's just like, okay, right. that's that's an official right. Position from the government. Right. It's not fringe at all. It's, right. it's, it's not it's, a guy on the soapbox in the park. It's a really important person in an important position. And that, as you say, it, it uh, institutionalizes it in some way. Absolutely. And even people who perhaps were afraid that other people might still judge them, yeah, it becomes easier for them to adopt this position. Say, well, it's not like I really think that, but, you know, uh, that's the official position of my country. You know, I follow the rules and so on. So it also... I mean, might even provide some excuse for people to adopt this view. One more thing that you may be wondering about, since this poll was conducted only in deep red states that were basically slam dunks for candidate Trump, did his language affect liberals at all? Well, Leonardo Burstein tested that. He focused on folks who generally liked Hillary Clinton and did not like people making anti-immigrant statements. And he told this group, look, a few years back, Swiss voters voted against the building of minarets, which are towers that mosques use to call people to prayer. And then he paired these liberals with Swiss voters, and he asked them to play a classic game in economics. And we told them, hey, here's $3. You can keep all, all for you, or you can decide how much to give to this person in Switzerland. Okay, so it's, it, they decide how to spend the money. And to some people, we said, hey... This is a Swiss person that you're playing with, 24-year-old male, how much you would like to give to them. You know, so they would give about a third on average. To some others, we said, uh, hey, this is a 24-year-old person from Switzerland who actually supports the ban on minarets. Okay? And then you see the donation rates go down substantially. So these participants are not very happy with the Swiss person. Then Burstein told the liberal Americans, just so you know, when the Swiss people had that vote on whether to ban minarets a few years back... The ban passed overwhelmingly. It got 57% of the vote. So what we see is that when you tell this the extra piece of information, they don't judge that Swiss person very negatively anymore. They just, donation rates go up again. Say, okay, I, I'll give them a pass if I know that he's in a social environment where this view is popular. Okay, so I, because I know that that person might have reasons to express that, might have strategic reasons even to behave in this way. And that... Burstein says is how a fringe idea becomes mainstream. Leonardo Burstein is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he's a co-author of the paper From Extreme to Mainstream, How Social Norms Unravel. We will have a link to his paper at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Radio.
And now to an idea that was once fringe, but in many cities at least has gone mainstream, charter schools. We got a lot of feedback on our segment last week about charter schools. Some of you loved it, and some of you didn't. The segment featured David Osborne, a former aide to Vice President Al Gore, and Chester Finn, a former assistant secretary of education in the Reagan administration, who have both studied charter schools, and both are mostly proponents of charters. One of our listeners had this to say, I'm a public school teacher in Chicago, a city where the charter movement is gaining strength, but facing a lot of opposition from the Chicago Teachers Union. I was a little bit disappointed that both of the guests you had on your program were proponents of charter schools. Another wrote that a Supreme Court ruling on unions will make all schools charter schools, and this ruse will finally be laid bare. Some of you had articles that you wanted us to read, so we've created a place on our website for a bunch of data and different perspectives on charter schools. We will have recent polling on who does and who does not support charters and where support is falling. We will look at President Obama's legacy on charters and what President Trump's Department of Education may be planning. Plus, we'll link to an article from Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, on why, in her view, charter schools are hurting public schools. And a response to her article from Stanford researchers. We always love hearing from you on Facebook, on Twitter, by email. So keep the feedback coming. 